0: This this is Recorded for Quality Assurance, an interview series where we talk to the world's leading CX experts about industry trends, CX technology, and simplifying the process of delivering great customer service.
1: Today we have on the pod, Michelle Rowan who is a CX executive with 20-plus years of experience in strategy, implementation, and optimization, both of U.S. and international support. She is an expert in the design and continuous improvement of the remote working model for contact centers, support functions, and enterprise, both in sourced and outsourced. Michelle's an accomplished speaker, author, executive team member, and consultant. Michelle is currently the president of the Work From Home Alliance, where she has collaborated with over 150 companies in the design expansion and continuous improvement of their work from home programs. Welcome to the pod, Michelle. Really quick, I just have to ask, do I have your permission to record this call for quality assurance? Absolutely. Absolutely excellent. We'll jump right in. Can you give our listeners and our readers some insight into your background? So where you started, maybe your first job getting out of college and then where you got to where you are today.
0: Yeah, sure. I um my career began in HR actually. Um and then I moved from human resources into Um, more of an operational role. And that was actually in my first contact center assignment. It was with an outsourcer. Um, And uh, uh, once I moved from human resources to operations, um, I eventually landed at Hilton Hotels. And I spent 12 years with Hilton Reservations and customer care. So it's the reservations and customer service arm of the hotel um, organization. And while I was with Hilton, I ran a large contact center for them um, in Tampa, Florida. And then I moved to London, to the UK, where I was based for five years. And in that assignment, I looked after our reservation and customer care offices in europe middle east asia and africa that was supposed to be a two-year assignment and ended up being five um um, a post i thoroughly enjoyed because i got to live in london and travel all over the world and stay in really nice hotels so that was um, a fantastic experience and then i moved back to the us still with hilton and and worked on some um, other projects with them and eventually um, one of the projects I worked on actually was uh, moving a thousand plus people from in-house contact center positions to homepage positions with Hilton. And I fell in love with that business model and saw the opportunity for life enrichment on the part of employees and saw the benefits um, for organizations. And I saw no downside in that business model. So I decided to take the leap out on my own, uh, away from the corporate environment and start my own consulting company. And I did that um, just over 10 years ago and I've been helping companies design and improve their remote working programs um, ever since. I find it so interesting,
1: Michelle, I talked to a lot of people on the podcast who give their career journey. And I'm so surprised by how many people who I talk to that are now in leadership positions or, or have moved on to be consultants that actually started as contact center agents. I think that sometimes contact center agents can feel like it's a dead end position, a transitional position. But what I'm learning, the more and more I talk to people is they started out in the contact center.
0: Oh, yeah. So I yeah. think that's
1: inspiring.
0: I, I totally agree with you, Haley. I know, you know, the contact center organization is often, in many, many times it is an entry-level position in many organizations, depending on um, the service and product that's being um, furnished, right? And whether it's B2B or B2C or what the environment is like, but it is often a, um, even though it's entry-level, it's a it's a breeding ground, for professional development and many of, you know, certainly my clients and member companies um, are often, you know, refilling positions because of promotion um, out to other arms of the organization. So I like that you reminded us all of that. Thank you. Because I think sometimes we, we forget that.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you had just talked about moving away from working from Hilton, well, that you enjoyed so much bringing so many of their contact center individuals over from to the work-from-home model. So now you have this organization where you consult on that. Can you share a little bit more about your unique organization and what your day-to-day role and responsibilities look like as the president of the Work-from-Home Alliance?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, the Work-from-Home Alliance gives leaders the systematic approach to collecting meaningful insights around work from home and hybrid work, um, which obviously is more important now than ever before. Um, but I have found through, you know, my working with individual companies that one of the things that people really, really were seeking was an opportunity and a platform and an environment where they could gather with their colleagues um, in a transparent and safe environment to share their experiences and their insights um, and their challenges around remote work and work from home. And obviously that is all uh, blown up and taken on and, uh, you know, a, a front and center um, position as a result of the pandemic. So. Um, I have refined kind of the work that uh, and the platform that uh, my company has offered through the years um, to this point, which is now this uh, revolution around where people work uh, because it's all changed and how we support them. Um, and engage with them and uh, manage them and source them and all those things. So the Work From Home Alliance gives leaders that systematic approach um, to be able to collect meaningful data and insights from a group of colleagues that are relevant in a transparent and kind of safe um, environment. And the focus is a laser focus. It is on remote work, work from home, hybrid work, um, we have a lot of um, senior leaders in the contact center environment that participate and also on the corporate side of the environment, because if you take away that, that transactional nature of the contact center, um, the way that we support people um, remotely is pretty much the same. So, Um, through the Work From Home Alliance, we offer corporate memberships. And again, the laser focus is on work from home and hybrid work. And for our corporate members, we facilitate frequent virtual meetings. Um, They're monthly. There's a couple of them a month for different levels of the organization. One is a senior leader strategy session, and the other is an operational uh, best practice exchange. Um, And we facilitate those virtual meetings so that members can easily share their vision, their tactics, their experiences, their challenges with work from home and hybrid work. And we we also do a couple benchmarking surveys a year for member companies and also have a um, an online forum, some private meeting groups for members to be able to, to exchange digitally um, in that environment. So um, I just wanted to share one more thing about corporate membership because to me it's it's such a deal um, and it's it's only two thousand dollars a year for a corporate membership and that allows for, unlimited attendance to monthly meetings. So you can send two people or 20 people. um, And it also includes participation in the benchmarking surveys and those online private groups. So, um, you know, 2000 bucks once a year for a corporate membership is a very, very low ticket cost to to get plugged into a network of uh, like-minded individuals. Um, And in terms of my role, I facilitate, uh, again, those meaningful uh, sessions for our corporate members. I also do one-on-one consulting for companies that want a more personal approach as they re-engineer their remote working programs um, for this kind of long-term vision. And as as we're getting to this endemic point, hopefully we are, that's what companies are doing now. They're stepping back and, and saying, what's the playbook? For the long term, now that we're going to have large populations of people at home. The other thing that I do is um, hold in-person meetings and conferences and workshops now that we're getting to a a safe way that we can do that again so that, again, leaders can meet in person. So we're offering virtual interactions and also in-person interactions where we drill down on all things remote work. Um, for very focused laser exchanges. That's amazing. I truly believe
1: that there's nothing more valuable than getting into a room with your peers and sharing your pain points, everyone sharing their pain points, and then seeing, you know, I can help this individual with one thing, they can help me with another, and that collaborative environment and how useful it is as opposed to just reading or listening to a webinar or listening to a podcast but truly getting into a conversation with people that are all in the same industry or different industries but dealing with the same the same issue like work from home yeah
0: i totally agree and it, it it's the focus and the attention and the commitment the time investment that we make to having those um deeper exchanges, you know, and when you're on a one hour webcast, even, or, you know, you're reading content or, um, you know, other sources of, of media that we have access to, you're not going to get that same um, level of exploration of thought um, and experiential sharing that you get when you camp out for a day and a half or two days in a room with, with colleagues that are there for Um, the same reason. And the thing that makes my meeting so interesting is that people come from all um, different industries. So you've got financial services, healthcare, um, uh, utilities, education, professional services, retail, travel. So that makes for really interesting dialogues. And people are coming in from various functional areas. So there's HR leadership and it guys and uh you know strategy people and project managers and operational leads and and so that makes for really really interesting um dialogue and is quite eye-opening uh for people and when you get it into a nice kind of relaxed setting where people really feel comfortable um, opening up it's there's kind of like nothing like it in fact sometimes i mean i I facilitate um, these, you know, the all of these sessions and queue up topics that I know are going to be of interest. But oftentimes, I'm the one that needs the foghorn because they put me in the corner and just keep going at it. You know, I mean, it's hard for me to like make sure that we really cover everything on the agenda because the dialogue is so extensive. So that just goes to show how meaningful the sessions are. They're they're terrific. That's incredible. So I'm um, moving. Forwards in August,
1: Vistio released a practical guide that covers how to hire, manage, and retain remote contact center agents. It also addresses how we navigate the issue of having agents in a hybrid workforce uh, as well. So, you're having individuals who are working from home and then working from the office. Uh, I'd love to dive into your thoughts around the topics that we covered in that ebook, as you are the expert, really. So, in your opinion, what are the key tips or the most crucial elements to keep in mind when undertaking talent acquisition and hiring in the unique work from home atmosphere that the pandemic has now created? Or just in general, as we're seeing with you, you've been doing this for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I, and I think we've learned this more from the pandemic than any other time um, and that is uh, one of the most important things to me is to be, you know, the, the importance of being transparent about what you're looking for and what your requirements are in the job and how you put them across to people. Um, we need to be, you know, really clear and really honest about what the job requirements are and what the day-to-day and hour-to-hour role looks like. And we need to be effective at getting that across to people um, so that we don't waste their time or ours, because that costs a lot of money when we hire the wrong people. Um, and I think the other thing that that became abundantly clear during the pandemic uh, for many of my member companies um, and my clients that I've spoken with is the need to be quick uh, in terms of speed to market with the the selection process, the whole hiring and onboarding process. If, if yours is taking, you know, weeks to be able to give people feedback, you're going to lose um, in that proposition. Uh, you know, so the, 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 the quickness and the ease of moving through the process is super important and, you know, getting it right in terms of what the job really looks like, um, what you're offering, what the requirements are. So that's so interesting. You gave
1: me the perfect caveat into my next question is, and it's a little redundant, but how can you, how can you quickly identify candidates who will thrive in the work from home environment? Are there red flags that you can identify right off the bat from, let's say, even their CV to their interview that can indicate a candidate is perhaps not suited for the work from home environment?
0: Yeah. I like to look for some things and I, and um, you know, this one is not a new one, but it's an important one, job hoppers, you know, so if someone is, is having trouble committing um, and there's a pattern of that on the CV, the chances are, they're going to have trouble committing to you. You're raising the risk right there. So I, I um, am really careful about um, people that um you know, have trouble making commitments unless you're hiring for short term assignments. And if you're hiring for short term assignments, go for it. If you're hiring seasonal workers, that's not necessarily, um, you know, a negative at all. Uh, but depending on what you're what you're looking for, again, if you're looking for people to, um, you know, make long term commitments, you need to look at w- what they're demonstrating and their background because the, t- the CV tells the story long before you have to uh, interact with someone um, and have a personal conversation with them about it. Um, another thing I think that's important is to, um, is to understand what someone's experience working in an isolated environment is like. And today we're going to hear that pretty much everybody, if they've been working in the last two years, they've probably worked in an isolated environment. So the question then becomes, you know, you've got experience doing it. How do you like it? Rate it. Um, on a scale of one to 10. I I'd like to ask people to do, to do that. People that really seek a lot of personal social interaction at work may struggle more. They're going to struggle more than people that don't necessarily use work as a conduit for s- their social life. Some people do. Some people don't care about that because their social life is coming from their family. It's coming from you know their neighborhood and their other set of friends and all the other things they do. But for people that really like a lot of social interaction at work, you need to be honest about whether you're offering that and whether you're doing it well and whether the job um, enables for that. Some do, some don't. So I think that's another um, that's another important one. Just really kind of understanding how how much experience people have working remotely in an isolated environment, if they're set up for it, you know, from a logistical standpoint in terms of what your requirements are and what their preferences are. Do they like working that way or they're just trying to get a job right now and the minute they can go back into an in-office environment, that's where they're going. I think those things are important to um, explore early. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you talked
1: about, when we are doing, let's say, big hires for seasonal work, or um, perhaps what we're calling gig CX. Yeah, do you? Yeah, so when you're hiring just for seasonal individuals, what do you think are some key red flags? you named a couple, but what do you think are some more key flags where we can quickly vet individuals that we are going to hire for a short period of time, try to train really quickly, and then they'll only be working with us for a short period of time?
0: Yeah, I would look for experience in doing that kind of work because it's a different kind of work, isn't it? To work on a contract, on a short-term contract, it's a different kind of work. You have to, you have to uh, show up, be extremely timely, be extremely focused, make the investment, um, and you know, meet the commitments that are expected of you. So I look f- would be looking for that sort of track record. Um, with employees that have worked that way or can demonstrate to you why they, why that is something that is going to be of high value for them in their life at this point. Um, And it's, you know, seasonal workers are great. Gig workers are fabulous. I think there's a real place for them in the contact center environment because there is so much seasonal work that many organizations do. Um, And maybe it's certain roles in the organization that ramp up and, um, you know, naturally a trip throughout the year, Uh, And I think just, you know, um, again, uh, identifying people that have other things going on in their lives. They know how to ramp up quickly and meet commitments for short term assignments. They're, They're often interested in returning at another point in time for another season. Um, And I also, am really drawn to paying those people um, a bit differently. Use incentives, you know, um, whether, you know, full season bonuses, retention bonuses, those kinds of things that, um, you know, if you're here for eight out of the 10 weeks, uh, that has a value of X to me. And if you're here for 10 out of the 10, that has a value of Y. Um, And there's even another level that if you can give me uh, two extra weeks that I don't know when I'm going to need you. That has another value. I really, um, I think people are drawn to that sort of um, incentive pay. Gig workers are, and I think restructuring some of our compensation to attract them is going to deliver a lot of mileage. I love that you brought that up. I'm always curious how to use um,
1: that tactic as a retention, not just for gig workers, but for our in-house full-time agents as well um and so I really like that idea yeah okay something I think
0: we could delve have a whole podcast about I like agree to, with you and I'd love to participate in that when you yeah. do that Haley put me on your list I will
1: <laughs> uh, a whole podcast a whole panel podcast about com- combating yes, attr- attrition it's time
0: it's time so
1: true um So we'll move on to the next step. So once once we've gotten these agents and we've vetted them properly, what are your top tips for onboarding and training them? What are some of your go-to technology suggestions to aid agents in onboarding and training processes? So that's a two-part
0: question. Um, Okay, and I think that's kind of changed. Um, You know, now that, again, we've been through this emergency, we're coming out the other side of it. And a couple things have changed. One, customer expectations are different than before the pandemic. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. They've risen.
0: Yes, they've Literally. risen. And they're, you know, customers are very comfortable moving um, across channels digitally. In fact, not only comfortable, but they expect it. And, you know, they're, um, well, while customers were forgiving during the emergency um, in terms of service levels, now they're not so much so. Um, now the bar is being raised again, and I'm getting that feedback from a lot of my clients that, um, you know, customers uh, are demanding more than ever before. And um, from, the, from the corporate side, we're just now being able to move into a position where we can uh, try to meet that raised bar. Um, And we were coming off of big staffing problems, which there's been, you know, major compensation adjustments across, I can't think of an industry that hasn't made compensation adjustments to be able to mediate, um, you know, some of, some of the um, demand change and, and the, you know, sourcing problems that everybody was having, having, um, So that, you know, we're in a different place and that's the first thing that I think everyone needs to recognize and we're not going back to the other way. So uh, technology is playing a completely different role and, um, you know, we need to be able to navigate with our customers, um, to, to meet their objectives live, you know, synchronously and asynchronously. Um, both, and we need to be able to see what they're saying while we're listening to them um, and not listening and responding with something different off a script. We need to be, um, you know, partnering in shared system. And often that means cloud technology, cloud-based functionality that is advanced to be able to uh, meet customer expectations today. And then when you get into that, if you agree with that sentiment, then that means you have to back into the fact that the tools that your employees are using need to be that advanced as well. So I'm seeing a lot of my clients make big investments in legacy technology to do just that. They're moving to the cloud to be able to access data more real time, to be able to um, enhance tools Uh, Much more quickly and to be able to offer that integrated cross-channel experience um, uh, and partner with our customers as opposed to scripting some response to them sort of blindly.
1: I think think a technology that I've kind of been thinking is optimal for for the increased expectations of the customer is... This, you know, something that would help us de-escalate the escalation. Um, yes. where we have, yeah, <laughs> if there's another way to say it. Um, but something that you know connects the front office to the back office a little bit easier, giving your agents more access to some of some more information, for instance, accounting or things like that, where that would usually have to make your client go from maybe talking to a bot to get them over to an agent. And then an agent puts them over to, you know, someone who is more sufficient in accounting and can help them with bill pay or something like that. And how can we smooth over that transition that the bot gets them to the agent and the agent can handle whatever issue that they have?
0: Yes, I I, I totally agree. And, you know, when you're starting with something like a bot, the bot is going to, you know, it gets, you start with that whole self-service function and being able to do as much as we can um, or inviting our customers to do as much as they can um, in self-service. And then at at that escalation point where someone needs to speak to or interact with an agent live, we need to be able to, you know, 90% of the time solve that problem right? Because they're coming into the interaction with a frustration that they already couldn't self-service in most cases. Um, and they're expecting very quick resolution. So I totally agree with you that, um, you know, when a customer reaches an agent, that agent needs to be a very well-rounded, um, uh, source that can access, can solve the problem. And that goes beyond, you know, looking at one screen or one singular reference point. Um, And it's also a different skill set. So it's like, finally, the, you know, we're, we're accepting the fact that our reps are true knowledge workers and we're compensating them. Exactly.
1: I, we bring this up on almost every podcast that Oftentimes your agents are the only uh touch point that they have that your customers have with your organization. And so they truly are the person the person represent- representing your organization, but also they can often be subject matter experts in your product or service. Yes. So why so why are um are they oft are agents not often treated um, or compensated, yeah. For the in-depth knowledge they have of the company, yeah. Always yeah, and it's
0: it's all um, sort of changing right now.
1: You know, oh, very, yeah, very much so.
0: So yeah. it, catching just up. to
1: backtrack a little bit. Um, we're talking about getting those agents to be subject matter experts in our product or our service. How do we ensure that when they're onboarded in the work from home environment, that they're trained in a way that ensures they deliver accurate, consistent, and excellent customer service when they can't be trained in person? And is that even an issue?
0: Yeah. Um, I And I think it's a really interesting question. And again, this is the right time. I think this is the pivotal point in... Um, In our industry and in many now that we're moving from and in the contact center environment, clearly, you know, many, many, many organizations are keeping large populations of people um, at home for the long term because that's the preference of employees. And we sit on a lot of expensive real estate and it's been proven that it works really well. Um, work from home in the contact center environment because of the highly transactional nature of the jobs and because of this fabulous technology that that um, many of us have had access to and, and keeps coming to market at a rapid pace, just like yours. Um, and so how do we uh, you know, make sure that people are onboarded and trained really well? I don't know that we've done a very good job at that at all over the last you know, two or three decades. I mean, piling people into a classroom for eight hours a day and talking at them, moving through PowerPoints. I mean, is that really a good training experience? I, I don't really think so, but it's what we had and what we knew. So we did it. Um, and now um, that so much onboarding and, and training is taking place purely virtually, um, and now that there's great technology at our fingertips, we are able to make training a lot more interactive and to improve um, speed to proficiency. Definitely. And it's proven. And that's that's there's lots of data that you can access through, um, you know, global learning and development organizations like ASTD um, about you know, speed to proficiency um, when you use multimedia and multi-channel adult learning um, methodology, as opposed to 40 people in a classroom with two instructors um, using PowerPoints for eight hours. So now we're forced to (laughs) get much better at training than I think any of us um, were willing to make the investment in before. Um, I think companies have always known that they could do a better job in, in uh, new hire onboarding and training, but it was, you know, number three or four or five on the list and other things always got in front of it. So now we have to make that big investment. Um, if we're going to uh, retain people once we've hired them, and we talked about how we have to be fast at that and transparent and you've got, get really good at onboarding or onboarding and and be quick and have many touch points and kind of restructure and I can give you some examples of what I'm seeing companies do to restructure that engagement really really early in the process to make sure they don't lose people and then re-engineer training so that it is multimedia um, and people are you know switching channels and um, using different tools to learn and consume content and interact with their colleagues during the course of the day and interact with their instructors. And I'll give you um, one example of what a module might look like rather than people going, spending an hour in a classroom together where an instructor talks at them for 40 minutes and they do a little CBT thing and maybe um I don't know do a quick role play now in in the remote environment and the multimedia environment um a rep may begin a lesson by watching a two-minute video that is being presented to them from another rep a contact center rep who is introducing the lesson the objective of the lesson why it's important in the job how the rep, the experienced rep has used this tool or product or service and what it's meant to them, where they struggled with it, um, and how they use it. So an introductory video kind of thing. And then the, the new hire is moving into a self-directed lesson where they are watching a, you know, Adobe storyline. Um, sort of um, storyboard for a couple of minutes. There's some you know, navigational examples that are demonstrated through Captivate. And then the rep um, uses their own keyboard to uh, do some practice during that same lesson. And then they take a quick quiz to measure their uh, retention of what they just took in. Um, and their understanding of it, and then they go back into a live classroom with an instructor and maybe 10 other colleagues that just finished that same lesson. And then they're breaking away into a pod with two colleagues that are live. Um, And so there's a total of three reps that are in this training class, but they moved into a private room together, and they're role-playing together. So one is observing and scoring, one is playing customer, and one is playing um, employee that kind of thing and and what the pods do is form early day relationships with people coworkers that can't sit side by side in an office environment or a physical training environment but they have something in common so their work schedules are similar um, their their job responsibilities or their roles are similar um and their you know the The regions that they're going to be servicing for customer support are similar. They've got some things in common, and you are assigning new hires with reps that are, you know, have similarities very, very early in the process. And you're putting them together because they're not going to have that natural uh, evolution on their own, not like we would when we're co located. So I'm a really big fan in that assignment of partnerships and pods. It's more than one other person. It's a couple um, to help people form those early relationships so they can share their knowledge and experience informally um, and formally kind of from day one. So I, I think that's a really important part of the training process. And from the onboarding process where I'm seeing companies make changes is in those engagement points. The touch points, as soon as someone is hired, again, hiring is happening quickly. I'm seeing companies that are eliminating some of their at least pumping the brakes on some of the assessment tools that they were using where they weren't really getting a lot of results out of them and they were saying what are, what are we getting from this other than it taking it adding delays to the process so i'm seeing companies really evaluate everything from the assessment tools to you know the amount of time it takes to hire someone and then once someone is hired the reality is shipping equipment and issuing all the licenses and IDs and all that stuff when it's digital takes longer than when someone just walks into an office and sits down in a co-located environment and signs in it takes longer so we have to overcome that with additional engagement points very early so that we don't lose people along the way and i'm seeing companies completely reengineer their engin- their onboarding processes to make early connections. So while licenses are being issued and equipment is shipping, meetings are happening. And some of that early stuff um, in orientation and those relationships that I'm talking about and some of the low hanging fruit and training is firing quickly um, before, um, you know, sometimes before employees even have their equipment yet. That's the kind of re-engineering that I'm seeing and it starts in onboarding and then it goes to new hire training and kind of everything. I think that we do needs to be reviewed, Haley, um, when we're talking about it t- taking a long-term stake in supporting people remotely and effectively and, in, and providing the social environment and the educational environment and the, you know, the customer experience that we want to deliver. It's it's all going to look different. And now is the time to to review everything that we've done um, with a fresh perspective. And it does absolutely start with onboarding and training. So I love I love the work that you guys are doing. I'm so glad you brought up um, right away
1: having kind of some of the initial touch points in the training be from a fellow agent. We just uh, did we just released a blog here about tech adoption in the contact center and that you have champions. So you have champion agents that you know can kind of support other agents with the technology and there's not the pressure of it being a manager. If I mess up in front of this manager, then you know, could I lose my job or are they gonna think that I'm not efficient enough in this technology? And I didn't think that it could be transferred over, even to as beginning as the training process, where you put an agent that's been with the company right in front of them from the beginning. Um, you also mentioned some great stuff about how you create connection and community feel.
0: Yeah. From
1: um, we'll, we're going to get to that later because it it's a really interesting topic to me. But before that, um, in a previous conversation that you and I had, you mentioned that. The pandemic is a call to action, really, and you were just talking about this, for organizations to look at their workflows and the technologies and plan for the long game. So what would you say are some of the go-to technology suggestions to aid agents in successfully delivering, again, this accurate, consistent, and excellent customer service in the work from home environment where they don't have access. As quick access to answers um, as they have perhaps when they could just lean over, uh, you know, the cubicle and ask their manager that was sitting, you know, a couple of desks beside them.
0: Yeah, I think the um, the first thing is just starting with the agent self service experience. So the knowledge management system or whatever you want to call it, the go to tool that an agent can go to while they're live um, on an interaction with a customer and uh, to do a Google search, if you will, um, to be able to help, you know, service the customer and give them the, you know, whatever content that they're looking for. I think that's the first step is a really, really strong knowledge management system that probably, you know, is sitting on top of a lot of different technologies, proprietary technologies within an organization is super important so that uh, you know employees are empowered to self-service on their own and they know they can get somewhere by using that tool. So I think that's really important. Um, and then uh, the next step from that is being able to get into a live community quickly um, with like-minded peers. And again, that doesn't, to your point, Haley, it doesn't need to be a supervisor. It's better if it's not. It's better if coworkers can help each other um, in a you know dedicated um, chat environment with some subject matter experts, so they're reps that are good at technology or reps that are good at whatever it is that um, the employee is is after the newer higher um, that needs more help. But using reps that are seasoned and have the expertise and the interest in helping others and that have demonstrated that they're good at it, yes, we need to be giving them paying them for a serious amount of off-phone time so that they are doing two things. One, helping your new hires, and then two, also spending a certain amount of time doing their jobs during the day, um, interacting with customers themselves so that they can stay very current on on how customers are responding and embracing your products and services. Um, The other technology tools that I think are important, video I think is super important, Um, in this distributed environment, face-to-face interactions are super valuable. Um, You know, seeing someone's face, looking in their eyes, understanding how they're processing um, information that's coming over and messaging that is a dialogue that is taking place is really important animation, joy, all the things that we get out of (laughs) in-person interactions, we can get almost all the way there with video. So I am a big believer in video. I don't think we have to use it for every interaction, but I think for team gatherings in particular, where we we want our employees to share their knowledge and experience with each other um, informally is probably more important than anything. And the social aspects, I'm a, big fan of um, video. Um, You know, having healthy um, meeting platforms and, you know, we have different size meetings and and all all over the place in terms of what we're trying to accomplish when people gather in small sessions or training sessions um, and then large meetings. And there's great technologies out there for all those things, starting with something as simple as Zoom and Microsoft teams and, um, and then using, you know, some, uh, you know, things like Adobe connect for, for training because it's got a lot of extra bells and whistles to help people participate and be seen um, and contribute in a training environment. Um, So those are some examples and then taking it from there is just, you know, the rest of it is, is getting to the cloud and um, you know, having that real time view of what, what customers are seeing and doing when we're servicing them. I think that's critical. Um, if our screen looks different than what a customer is looking at, we have a big problem. And to think that you're ever going to be able to raise the bar and meet customer expectations, I don't think so, if you're looking at two different things. That's a really interesting point,
1: that if there's incongruencies of what the customer is looking at and what the agent's looking at, yeah. that there can be a significant disconnect. Yeah, it's an interesting point. So we've been talking a lot about agent attrition towards the beginning of the podcast. Now we're going to kind of delve a little bit more. Uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes you have seen organizations make when trying to combat agent attrition when many of their agents are working from home?
0: Yeah, I think that you know, that uh, getting back to hiring you know, as best we can, hiring the right people. And When I say that, I just mean being as transparent as we can about what the job is, because I think there's, uh, there's still too many smokescreens and filters and um, um, myths um, and stories we have told each other for years about what our jobs really are. Um, and I think we need to be really transparent about that. So uh, that's um, super important. Um another mistake I see companies make in the contact center environment is asking too much of people. Um, and let's take something like a service level, for example. Most companies use a measurement of something like, you know, we have a target of answering 80% of our calls within 20 seconds. And we want to respond to 80% of our asynchronous communications within X number of hours, those sorts of things. But the reality is the workload that we're putting on people is much higher than that. And that definitely was taking place during the pandemic. There's a, um, I've seen many companies just come up short and in that service level commitment. Um, and that commitment is not only to your customers, you're making it to your employees. And that's the thing I think that we sometimes forget about. But if, if we're burning people out because they're on live interactions you know, for f- 52 out of 60 minutes, what do you think they're going to do? How good is that experience going to be for your customers? Not very. Yeah. And, and people really can't sustain that. So something's going to happen. They're either going to exit or plan their exit, or they're going to develop behaviors um, to be able to take the breaks that they need to have to do their jobs well, which means your customers are going on hold or other things are happening during that interaction so that, so that reps get to take breaks. And I've had many conversations with leaders that are scratching their heads saying, you know, we're seeing this behavior pop up where people are disappearing and, uh, you know, we don't know what's causing it. It was like, well, what is your what is your occupancy level? Oh, it's 94 percent. So we are asking, you know, people are occupied on live phone calls or interactions, 94 percent of each hour. Well, yeah, I would be putting people on hold. You have to do do something to get a break. So I think we need to be really mindful of that, that occupancy levels and service levels are not just commitments that you're making to your customers. It's commitments you're making to your employees. So I think think, um, the demand um, has to be really looked at and managed on a regular basis. And we're just, you know, make the investment in staffing appropriately as opposed to pretending that you're going to achieve something that you're not. And then the other one I think that's really important is work schedules and flexibility. Um, um, you know, we hear a lot about flexibility these days. And I still see some lip service going on there where companies are are, you know, the flexibility is actually on their end, but not what they're delivering to employees. And um, rigid work schedules Um, You know, that's a real deterrent for many people to be able to to make a longer term commitment or perhaps even a seasonal or contractual commitment. Um, There are some people that like fixed regular work schedules and we should be giving those people those schedules if we can and then there are many people that like to flex their schedules because they have other things in their lives that are priorities they have families they're in caregiving situations they have young kids at home they sell real estate they do they they teach yoga classes they're actors they're writers people that have other professions and we're hiring those people we should be offering vehicles where those people can flex their schedules as much as they want to. And, and we get a much higher stick rate when we, when we do that. Yeah, I think that's the,
1: it's almost like the conundrum with moving a contact center agent to the work from home environment where in perhaps other professions, you know, I can step away from my computer and go run an errand really quickly, pick my kid up from school Um take my laundry and etc. But when you're asking, just like you were saying, Michelle, when you're asking someone to sit down at their computer, they are tethered to their computer and they get say like four 15 minute breaks or three 15 minute breaks and an hour lunch. How for some people, they need that structure. It's it's what they thrive on. But for most people in this work from home environment, it's just not going to work. And so how do we change it? How do we change that model? to work for contact center agents and still keep up excellent customer service.
0: Yeah, I mean, and if you think about, you know, where so many of the challenges have been and the the absences in the workforce in terms of the full return rate, you know, the the labor force participation rate, the biggest drain um, and the biggest limitation has been parents that have, you know, not been able to return to their previous capacity because of their new lifestyle and their child, uh, their family, the way that they're managing their families and looking after them. So if you can ask someone to be dedicated and commitment committed for um, two two-hour segments during the course of the day or two two-and-a-half-hour segments during the course of the day versus one six-hour segment, do you think you're going to get a different response? Yes. For many, yeah, for many people, they would say, yes, I can commit to two and a half hours in the morning and two and a half in the afternoon, or some days it might be two, two in the morning and three in the evening, um, and I'm going to give your customers a tremendous customer experience because I'm going to have the door closed, and I'm going to be fully committed and energized, and I will have accomplished you know, the other things in my life that I had set out to accomplish that day. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, it just opens um, a much larger pool of people. You know, is it more expensive for companies to get more flexible like that with schedules? Yes. It means you have to hire more people and train more people. But are you going to hire better people and keep them longer and deliver a better customer experience? Yes. It's kind Kind of where we are now um, as we move into this remote world and people working from home and people wanting to have a lot more control over um, when they contribute professionally and how they contribute. We have to get more creative and really step up to the plate. And is it going to cost a little more? Yeah. Um, but, you know, hey, uh, we're spending a lot less money on on office facilities and energy and and things like that. So, uh, you know, the, the cost savings for organizations with work from home is gigantic. And, uh, you know, we need to be, it's not all cost savings. We need to be making investments in the stuff that you know, the kinds of things we're talking about today. Flexible scheduling costs more money. Digital learning costs more money. Hiring people that are part-time costs more money. Um, But we're going to get huge mileage out of that stuff for the long term. Exactly.
1: It's a long game. So I'm so glad you brought that up because when you think about it, so if you put in all this back work that perhaps costs more money, um, like you were saying, but then the age and attrition is lower. We don't have the brick and mortar costs there's some, or even then we have increased employee experience, which improves in- the customer experience. Oh, yeah. and maybe, you know, your customers are going out and you're getting more business because your customers are evangelists of your company. Yeah. So how, how can this ripple effect happen if you were to invest some money on the front end training and the flexible work schedule that we're talking about Are we really going to lose money? But in the long end, it's going to be, it's going to make us money, and we're going to be at the forefront of the future of work.
0: Yeah, and just from a just just a quickie little back of the napkin cost analysis because I've done a lot of the cost saving analysis over the years as as we talked about. I've been doing this a long time. So, when companies just purely shedding the real estate and related costs of real estate, um, you know, its facilities, its utilities, its materials that are consumed on site. Uh, paper, coffee, et cetera, et cetera, all those things, all those things that go into facilities, operating expenses, typically it's 40% less expensive um, to hire someone in a work from home environment than to put them into an office environment, even including the increased costs of, um, you know, licensing the telecom platform, for example, Um, even including that. So, Let's just say we're saving 40% by shedding the real estate and related costs, even though we may invest 20 to hire a higher part-time population versus full-time, a higher part-time mix, and invest in flexible scheduling and invest in digital learning. um, I would say that, that that cost is about 20%. So the net gain is still huge. It's still... 20% less expensive, even when we get really good at making the right investments in remote workers. We're still going to save at least 20% over um, what it costs to manage people in a co located environment in an office building. Yeah, it brings up a lot of, we could talk
1: about this forever
0: because this brought up
1: this idea to me that on the employee end of things, their cost reduction as far as Having, you know, needing to have a vehicle. So, individuals who don't have a car, public transportation isn't readily available in their area. How your talent pool just gets so much richer, but also the cost savings for your employer, your employees. And not that that means you need to pay them less, but it might then. It's so much more enticing to
0: get, yeah. There's better definitely, workers on. and I like the I like the transportation. Um, I like the transportation example that you just used, Haley, because I, I like to use the example of um, in the remote work environment, transportation is now the ISP. It's not your car. It's not getting on the train or you know getting in an Uber or doing whatever to physically get to a co-located office space. You need to have a solid internet connection. And typically that cost falls on the employee, but that's a lot less expensive than a car and insurance <laughs> to your point. You know, yeah. it is. And there's some investments that employees have to make. I mean, we, you know, employees have to make sure that they do have a solid internet connection. Usually that's a baseline requirement that often falls on the shoulders of employees. And, and um, I think that's fine. As long as we're clear about that expectation, employees have got to have, you know, the right work environment, um, for themselves. uh, And, you know, the, you know, ergonomically correct um, setup, uh, whatever that may be um, in their, you know, where they're working. So there's some, and, and, you know, employees are going to be consuming their own coffee and their own paper products and probably using their own pens and doing those kinds of things during the course of the day. So there's a, a, you know, some costs that may be a bit higher for employees compared to going into an office, but that still falls short of just to your point with the cost of you know having a vehicle to get to work. And yeah I mean clothing allowance you know yeah. I mean if you're dressing up to go into an office, I mean, typically things are a bit more relaxed at home. We all know how to do that. Well, we've gotten good at it and things like lunches out, um, you know, that maybe people were doing five days a week that now they're only going to do one or two days a week and things like Starbucks that you were, you know, buying just for the, you know, commute to make it to the office. You know, there's, there's some savings there too that many people can realize. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That wasn't even a part of my thought of this conversation, but it's an interesting caveat that we took. Um, I I wanted to go back to something that we touched on in the beginning, and you talked a lot about um, having good video for creating those connections at the beginning on the onboarding and training. So I wanted to go back to that a little bit. From your experience, what are the ways that organizations can extend their organizational values and culture when in the remote atmosphere.
0: Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because one again kind of thinking about how do we do that now versus what we did when we were all co-located and um, for me when I think about coming on board into a new environment, I mean I I'm you know empl- uh, employees and applicants start that assessment process and sizing up who an organization is and whether they're going to fit, um, with, you know, the, you know, display of the job on the job board or wherever they're seeing it. And, you know, the initial self-service steps that they're going through, does this feel right? Is stuff clear to me? Are they being transparent? Is it easy? Yes or no? Is it clicking? Is it aligned? Or, you know, do I need to bail? Cause something feels off here. Um, and then moving, um, you know, once there's a, phys- a first physical interaction, you know, whether that's a phone call um, or a video interaction with a representative of the company, I mean, that's where applicants start to size up those organizational values and cultural pillars and, um, you know, belief systems of the organization. It starts that early. And applicants are going to be matching up what you say against what they see people do um, from those early days. And in a co-located environment, there's a lot of observation that takes place through informal interactions and you know, people walking up and down hallways and how they informally interact with each other and, and how leaders treat each other and how decisions are made. And there's all kinds of observations that people are making just because they're in the middle of them. So we have to get really good at getting all that messaging across to our employees on two levels. One is the intentional messaging, the formal stuff through... Scheduled, you know, town hall meetings that are live and recorded. Lots of leaders coming into those early onboarding days that I was talking about. I'm seeing a lot more interaction with that from day one and day two, where all kinds of leaders are beaming into live sessions via video and imparting, you know, their roles and, you know, whatever their messaging is that's important to the organization and what they say. Is part of it, and the other is just the informal stuff of how they really conduct themselves, um, how that all lines up. Um, you know the you know what companies say their values are against the live interactions that people are experiencing from early days. That's where. That's how we really project our organizational value and cultures. Part of it is what we say, but um, the other is really, it's much more important on how people are treating each other, how the trainers treat each other, how the leaders that are coming into the live sessions during orientation, those early days um, are interacting with the trainers and the other people. And, um, you know, all that stuff, right? That's That's what new hires are looking for. They're looking for the alignment between, um, what people do and, and what companies say they are. And the more exposure we give uh, to people in those early days, the stronger those bonds are going to be. And, and, you know, when we're all co-located, that's certainly a big benefit because people are immersed in a sea of that and more of it's informal than formal uh, in terms of that alignment of value and cultures and projecting all that stuff. So we have to work harder at that, I think, um, when people are remote, which means a lot more calendaring of exposure to people um, in the organization, early, early, early. And then again, those those uh, the, you know the 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 building of the communities, the assignments of the pods and the exchanges. And so we really have to plan and calendar a lot of meetings and, you know, interactions that, Many before would have been informal and just happened because we were all in the same building. We just have to work harder at it. But think about how good we'll get at it. (laughs) I know. I when (laughs) when you were
1: talking about during the training process, how that training process, the example that you gave, and then going into pods where there and the way those pods functioned, I thought that's a perfect uh, arena the perfect platform to create bonds with coworkers, exactly like you're saying. And so it took us a long time to get to the culture question, but it was spurred in the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to wind down a little bit. And um, I always call these the fun questions. So, Michelle, what resources, we're talking podcasts, publications, blogs, Whatever that is, you regularly reference to stay on top of industry trends and news.
0: Well, you know, um, I love introductions, and for example, we were introduced by a colleague, right? Someone that we both know, Terry, um, Rybolt. So I love introductions like this, and I know now that you have resources, Haley. So, um, because I met You through a trusted source, and we had this great dialogue together. I'm certainly going to be looking at your blog um, and connecting to that on a regular basis. So, you know, when I meet people through um, through LinkedIn or through trusted networks, LinkedIn is very is a big one for me. um, That's that's a that's a big source for me in terms of who I follow. Um, on LinkedIn. And I find LinkedIn to be a really easy aggregator of all kinds of great content, Um, whether it's video or podcasts or articles, I can find it all there. Um, And it's super easy to use. So I'm a big fan of um, LinkedIn as a baseline platform. And, you know, personal introductions and taking the, uh, you know, taking the time to stop and um, make sure that we make those connections quickly, even though we're all busy. I mean, when Terry rival introduced the two of us, I have a lot of confidence in my relationship with him. Um, and I so admire him that I knew that that was something that I was going to respond to quickly. And I think we both felt that way. I think it was mutual for you and me. Um, I also really like contact center pipeline. That's a great publication that, um, always has good writers and good content, um, and timely information and something that I can, you know, take a couple hours and read once a month, or I can take 10 minutes, uh, and scan it. So, um, that's another tool that I like to use too. I also do a blog. Um, so that's available for anybody on my website on work from home Alliance. Um, ICMI also has uh, good, good publication materials that are available. Those are some of the ones that I'm interested in. But once I start following people, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a scanner of LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, people are always shocked when I say that I live on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's always open and it's where I go for everything. And I think it's if you are introduced to someone like you and I were and you enjoy them, then why it's it's the perfect way to keep up with what they're doing on on a daily basis so i linkedin to me is an
0: invaluable tool yeah i totally agree and again sometimes i might spend you know um an hour there a week and sometimes i might be there six or seven hours a week um you know just uh, it just depends on what i'm looking for um how much time I have, but to me it's as, as important as you know Instagram or, <laughs> or whatever on the personal side of my life. I mean, I, it's just for business, for professionally, I'm going there because you know people that are doing stuff are are going to be visible there. Absolutely,
1: I couldn't agree more. This this is a follow up question. So we mentioned Terry um, as someone who I think is on the cusp of some really interesting things in regards to CX. Uh, Gig CX. He's also just a wealth of knowledge from his experience. So who are, who are some other standout leaders in the industry that you follow, look to for advice or, um, Collaborate with or would like to collaborate with.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I love to work with new companies too. I love to look for, um, you know, new companies coming to market, even like your company, for example, because for my colleagues um, and my clients in particular, they don't need my help in finding Avaya. And what I, uh, for example, is offering of later. They don't really need my help in finding, you know, what the big providers are doing because they have great visibility to that, particularly if they're using some of those tools. But what my clients don't have time to do is to see what's new coming to market. So I really like to do a lot of that research, which again, brings me back to LinkedIn and the Meaningful Connections. Um, that we're talking about, because those are the people that I want to get in front of my clients, and I do that at my conferences and workshops. I put small, new-to-market companies in front of my clients, so that they, I'm, I'm taking the legwork out of it for them, so that they can get some uh, fast insight into new market leaders. Um, some recently, another there's one that I can think of that I really like. It's a company called Amplify. Um, Sean Minter is the president of that company, and uh, that's a product that it helps um, frontline leaders that are really good at performance management get even better, and it helps average leaders that manage teams get good. And to me, we all employ a lot of them, so uh, it it uses um, Amplify you know, brings together all of the tools that we use in the contact center environment and, um, you know, refines them in such a way that uh, it, it's it, it helps um, all levels of leadership in the organization Um Promote employee performance and enhance it. And then in a digital environment, again, we need new tools to be able to do that and effectively support people that are remote. So that's a big one for me. That's a newer company um, to market. Some other leaders that, you know, there's, there's, um, I really like Richard Lau from Marriott. He is, he leads their IT technology and strategic alignment in the customer experience environment. Um, John Bunch from prime therapeutics. They are always on the cutting edge in the healthcare environment, um, with their technology, they're fully remote. Um, I have, um, a colleague from PNC bank, Bill Emerson. They're always doing really interesting things. Cindy, Cindy Zidavosky from Alliance data who's in financial services is, uh, again, these are people that are just like on the ground and, leaders you know they're innovators and they are um they are early adopters of new tech to new technologies in the contact center environment things like gamification um and automated recognition and reward and um you know aggregated data for performance support and and things like that so those are the the sorts of leaders that i tend to um connect with and um and have dialogue with. So interesting because they're just, they're curious and they have the support, the financial support um, from within their organizations to take steps and they're not afraid to take them. That's incredible. That's a great list. And I like that you throw out some specific companies
1: and the leaders of those companies um, that rarely happens on this podcast. And they can oh yeah. That, well,
0: great people. I don't know if I was supposed to do that or not, but you asked me, so there you have it. <laughs> it was great. It was great. <laughs> Michelle, this has been a pleasure. And that's going to wrap up our recording today.
1: Thank you so much for being on Recorded for Quality Assurance. We'll talk soon. Thank
0: you. I totally enjoyed it. This has been Recorded for Quality Assurance. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Bistio, visit Bistio.io.